Good morning, beloved. You better welcome me better than that. Good morning, beloved. <laughs> they let me out of the tuberculosis ward to be here, so I expect welcome. My name's Mark Toon. In case you uh, don't know who I am, I'm the senior pastor, and occasionally I pretend that I'm in charge of things, but uh, a couple of weeks ago I was reminded of who really is in charge of things around here. You might think the answer would be God, but that's not what I was going for. It's actually my wife, Cindy. Um, two Thursdays ago, she called, uh, called my assistant, Kathy, and she said, and I quote, because I was listening in, I'm making an executive decision. Mark is not going to Presbytery. He is not preaching this weekend. You're going to have to find someone to fill in for him because he's too sick and he's staying in bed. So there you go. Now we know who really is in charge of things around here. Um, and... The wonderful thing is that we got the people who step up and make it happen. So Pastor Megan went down to our first Presbyterian meeting, which I was so sorry to miss, and she stood up and she preached, or she spoke on my behalf and on our behalf, and wonderfully. Pastor Ellis had one day's notice to write a sermon and uh, to preach it, and he did, to great effect. Not only that, he also taught the new members class. Yep, he taught the, the new members class, one of the largest classes we've had in years, which is wonderful. And so um, I'm going to take this opportunity just to remind you of what most of you already know. The Lord has blessed us with such an incredible depth of leadership in our church, both in pastoral team, but the rest of our team, our lay leaders. Uh, if you've never been in a church that didn't have that kind of depth of bench, you don't know what a, a blessing it is. But I suspect that you do, and I just want to say thank you to my great team for work for the work they did. One of the privileges I had this week, uh, one of the things we do with new members is that a, a pastor meets, every, every new member or couple meets with a pastor. We feel like it's one of the ways to make a large church small, and we just want a chance to get to know the persons that are coming into the membership of our church. So I had a chance to meet with a, a young couple that's coming in, and, and at one point they said, you know, the, one of the things that we love about Chapel Hill's we, it seems to us that the Holy Spirit is alive and well everywhere we go, everywhere we turn. And they said, we came out of a setting that was so spiritually dead, you don't know what a gift this has been to us. And I told them, you don't know what a compliment that is to us. Uh, because in the, at the end of the day, regardless of our wonderful programs or ministries or everything that we have to offer, if all of that stuff is there, if it cannot be said... If it cannot be sensed that the Holy Spirit is alive and well in every aspect of our church, and the rest of it is just fluff. It's just frosting. And so uh, I'm grateful that that was their experience, and I pray that it will continue to be the case. And when people walk through our doors, whatever else they experience, they sense the Spirit of God uh, is at work here. When we come to chapter 8 of Romans, we come to the Holy Spirit chapter. As Pastor Bill mentioned Paul uses the word spirit 21 times in this chapter. That's more than any other chapter in the Bible. That's saying something. It's particularly saying something when you consider the context of the chapter. Because frankly, Romans is rich, but it can also be hard slogging, can't it? In the seven chapters that lead up to Romans 8, we've dealt with topics, doctrines like justification and propitiation and sin and law and death not exactly light, uh, you know, bedtime reading. And uh, in the weeks to come, we're going to take on equally fluffy topics such as predestination and, and election. It's almost like the Lord says, you know, I want to give you a little oasis. 
I want to give you just a little moment to breathe. And so for chapter 8, when we come to chapter 8, we come to a mountaintop. We come to a, a monumental expression of what it means to live life in the Spirit. And you don't even know how much you love this passage, but as we go through it, you're going to realize, oh man, that verse is a favorite, that verse is a favorite, that verse is a favorite. We're going to talk about them, and we're going to just luxuriate in this place for six weeks. We're going to soak it up. We're going to stew in the juices of what it means to live in the Spirit. And we're going to discover what that means, what that looks like, what are the symptoms of living in the Spirit, what are the tips for how we might better live life in the Spirit. We got a taste of it last week. Pastor Ellis introduced us to this wonderful uh, the introductory idea that it, because of life, because of the Spirit of God in, at work in us, we are free from sin. The first verse is like a trumpet resounding from the battlements of, of, the, of the church. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Say that with me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are... Do you know what a wonderful affirmation of faith that is? There are even people who love Christ, who believe themselves to be followers of Jesus, who still have not quite tipped to the fact that because they are in Christ, there's no guilt, no sin, no judgment, no condemnation. You could, you could just end it right there and, and you would have pronounced the gospel. But Paul's not done. He's going to carry on. One of the things we discover, though, in our reading today is that this work of the Spirit is not without its opposition. There's an enemy to it, and Paul, <coughs> Paul has a name for that enemy, and I want you to recognize it, and there'll be a test after the reading of this text, all right? In fact, you're, you're going to help me out a little bit. I'm, I'm pacing myself for two services, so I'm not going to recite the, the text. You're going to read the text, so if we could show it up here, I want you to read it, and I want you to read it with some passion. Imagine how I might be reading this, and I want you to read it this way. A few pauses, some draw, you know, because you are, you are entering into some holy ground here. All right, so can you read that for me in that way? Here we go. Read together. For those... <laughs> Good reading. Praise be to God. Yes, this is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Actually, you read it, so you go ahead and say that. This is... Thanks be to God. Let us pray. What a magnificent uh, affirmation of faith this is, Lord. We thank you for it. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us and transforming these mortal bodies. And, uh, and may it be so to a greater and greater degree because we engage your word this day. In Christ's name, amen. So with that wonderful reading, you see how often the word spirit appears in this text. And of course, that's just a a snippet of what we get through the entire chapter 8. But there's another uh, word that appears almost as frequently in this reading. What was that word? Flesh. Say it. Flesh. That is Paul's uh, oppositional force. That is the word. It, It comes from the Greek word sarx. You might think that sounds weird, except you know a word named, a word called sarcophagus, from which we get, we get that from the, the Greek word sarx, or flesh. It means flesh box. That's very graphic and awful, but that's, that's what a sarcophagus is. is a, a flesh box is where uh, the, the dead body is laid. Paul chooses this very graphic word, and I, I was so tempted. I, I was so tempted to preach this message with a big chunk of roast beef in my hand. I thought that would have been very, uh, very graphic. 
It would have probably pretty messy for the first three or four rows, but this is the image that Paul uses. He talks about flesh as the, as the opposition to the spirit. Flesh is bad, spirit is good. Flesh is death, spirit is life. And uh, it's kind of, it would be easy for us to think of these kind of as competing spiritual instincts. Um, our, our good side versus our bad side. You've seen some version of this image before, right? That it might be easy to think of, of it in, in those terms. This is how some would understand this passage. Spirit is like the angel on the one side who's whispering good things into our ear. And flesh would be like the, the demon or the devil on the other side that's whispering the naughty things that he wants us to do. And so we find ourselves trapped in this tug of war between competing forces and depending upon the day, perhaps depending upon what we ate for dinner, uh, sometimes the flesh wins and sometimes the spirit wins. Does that make sense to you? It's entirely wrong. It's entirely wrong. It's not at all what Paul means here. And if you read carefully, you would see there, there is a really a better image than this angel on one shoulder and spirit and devil on the other side. There's a, ve- a much better image for us to capture the meaning of the flesh. Take a look at this. Tell me what that evokes in you. Exactly, that's what evokes in you. This is what stirs in us. A couple of, a couple of months ago, Cindy and I signed up <coughs> for a uh, 30-day trial of Amazon Prime, uh, mostly because we wanted to binge watch one movie for free, and it was a, se- a series called The Man in the High Castle. Any one of you seen, any of you seen that? It is a very disturbing and very provocative uh, TV show. And the thesis of the show, the premise is simply this. The Allies lost World War II. The Nazis dropped an atom bomb on Washington, D.C. And now the entire east side of the United States is a part of the Third Reich. And so throughout the show, you see these glimpses of swastikas appearing in these very awful American places, hanging in Times Square. Or this is probably the most provocative one for me. It's the image of the flag and where there used to be a, a bed of stars instead of the Nazi, the swastika. It's, it really is. It was, I found it visceral. And, and, there was, and I, never got a, a, I never got numb to it throughout the whole series. Now, obviously, I, I wasn't old enough to have lived through World War II, but I, I still found it so disturbing to see the swastika prominently displayed and, and to imagine how horrific it would have been if, in fact, it had been the Nazis who won the war. I was reminded of that by one of the scenes where a health van shows up from the community to pick up a, a child from a family who had genetic defects to take him off to be humanely uh, exterminated uh, because they didn't want to uh, perpetuate that unhealthy bloodline. They wanted to keep the Aryan line, uh, bloodline pure. And if it wasn't so true... It would have seemed outrageous, but in fact, it is horribly true and ghastly. The swastika, the Nazi flag, it stood for pure evil. It still does. It still evokes those kind of responses, doesn't it? The Third Reich was a kingdom that was built in opposition to all that was holy, all, all that was good, all that was righteous. And there's no dabbling in both. There's no, ah, today I'm going to be a little more Nazi, and, and tomorrow I'm not going to be quite so Nazi today. There, there, you don't dabble in this. Either you belong to the Reich or you belong to the opposition. This is a better idea of what Paul's getting at when he uses what was in fact a very visceral and very disturbing image. This is what he's trying to call forth with this language of spirit and flesh. They're not two competing aspects of our 
own personality, our lesser self or our better self. Spirit and flesh represent two competing kingdoms. The flesh is the his human nature in rebellion against God. And it is Paul's way of summarizing everything that he has been saying in the seven chapters up until now. Uh, summarizing everything about our sinful nature and about our fruitless attempts to earn God's favor and to earn God's love by, by being no, nicer, by being good. I'm going to put it as crassly as I can because I still think so many Christians never quite get hold of this. We still think that we're going to help God along by, by being good, by being better, by being religious. So here's this, about as crassly as I know how to put it. Good works is like spraying deodorizer on a turd. No matter how you try to disguise it, underneath it is what it is. And if we are in the flesh, Paul would say, we belong to the kingdom that is in opposition to God. And no amount of perfume is going to cover the stink. Is that clear enough for you? Then comes the great news, though, because it sounds pretty stark in the opening verses that we just read. But then comes this wonderful verse 9, which is really the, the trumpeting of the good news. He says, you, <laughs> he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Do you hear that? You are not in the flesh. It's not a matter of whether you're having a good day or bad. You are not in the flesh. If, the fact, if in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, He goes on to say, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This is good news, astoundingly good news for Paul's readers 2,000 years ago. It still is. If you belong to Jesus Christ, if you have confessed your need for him, if you have bowed your your knee to his divine and saving lordship in in his life, then the incredible promise is that the very Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. That's amazing. The spirit that raised Jesus Christ from death to life now resides in you. I realize that there are all kinds of denominations and they have different kinds of emphases on on the Holy Spirit. We Presbyterians tend to be kind of a stiff lot as a people. Um... We're great on our theology. We're great on the proclamation of the word. We're great on our doctrine. Well-educated. But we can be a little stiff. Pentecostals, on the other hand, are kind of wild and unmoored and crazy. May I just say this? I hope that we are increasingly Pentecostal Presbyterians. Pentecostals, Presbycostals. I don't care what you call us. If... You can applaud that. That would kind of... That'd be kind of a Pentecostal thing to do. I know it kind of hurt though, didn't it, you know? <laughs> it's like the different, you know, how Presbyterians raise hands, you know. We have Pentecostals up here and Presbyterians, you know, kind of here. Or maybe one hand goes up but the other has to go down because you can't hit, you know, so. It's all a little painful for us, but... If we, really, if we really understand Pentecost to be the coming of the Holy Spirit in power, why in the world would we not want more of that in our lives? Good, solid, reformed, biblical, doctrinal, spirit-filled Presbyterians who are discovering the fullness of all that God has 
to offer. So if we're a Christian, if we follow Jesus, then he says we do have the Spirit. You're not a Christian if you don't have the Spirit of Christ. He said he doesn't belong to him. You don't belong to him. And yet, having said that, Paul goes on to say how that Spirit, that Holy Spirit, has taken up residence in these bodies, these mortal bodies, these flesh boxes. These are flesh boxes right here. And the Spirit of God has taken up residence there. And so there's this kind of weird tension. We who are filled with the living, resurrecting Spirit of Jesus, that these bodies of ours are still bodies of death and sin. So how is it that we live in that tension? How do we become more and more Spirit-filled, more and more Spirit-guided, more and more a reflection of the Jesus whose Spirit indwells us and the Christ who has set us free? Paul says in our text that we have a very powerful tool at our disposal. It's in the first few verses that we were reading. Did you notice what that, that tool was? Do this, point to your head. Point to your head, all of you. What's the problem? You don't understand? I'm not speaking in tongues here. <laughs> all right, you can drop your fingers now. But <laughs> I think I made you afraid. Paul says that our minds are, are the great tool for conforming our life to the Spirit of Christ. Our mindset. I want, you to, I want to remind you of what he said in his opening verses. For, the, <laughs> for those who live... <laughs> I really am so much better. You have, I'm, I'm, I'm great. I'm great. I'm loving this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Do you hear it again? Set the mind, set the mind, set the mind, set the mind, set the mind. The way we think, the things we choose to focus on, have a greater power to shape our walk in the Spirit than any other single thing. There have been many preachers down through the centuries that have lifted this doctrine, this idea up. Norman Vincent Peale back in the 50s talked about the power of positive thinking. Robert Schuller in the 70s and 80s talked about possibility thinking. Joel Osteen today talks about the power of positive affirmation. And we might tend to kind of sneer a little bit at these guys, to turn our nose up, to be a little disdainful of... But man, do, don't throw out the power of the truth of what they're saying because we don't like some of what they teach. Because it wasn't... Norman Vincent Peale and Robert Schuller and Joel Osteen that came up with this idea of the power of the way we think. It's the scripture that affirms this. And you go through the scripture again and again and you're going to find that affirmed again and again and again. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking on the form of a servant. He says, think like Jesus thought who did not hold on to his power and his prestige, his position. He humbled himself and became a servant. In Colossians 3, Paul says, set your mind on things above and not on things below, not on the earth that are on the earth. Later in Romans 12, we're going to see, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. And then perhaps is my favorite text that comes out of 
Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, where Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about the positive, good, life-giving things. One of the best indicators of whether you are living life in the Spirit is the content of your thought life. What do you focus on? What are you obsessed with? What consumes your, think, your, your waking and your sleeping thoughts? What obsesses you? What is your mind set on? That phrase is a very powerful phrase. Jesus used it when he was talking to Peter. Remember when Peter said, he, he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You have set your mind, you have not set your mind on things above. That's the same, that same passage. It's a, it's a rebuke from Jesus. It's a powerful affirmation. It says, without wavering, set your mind on these things. <laughs> In Bakersfield, I had a, a German shepherd dog named Caleb. Caleb means little dog in Hebrew. I thought that was enormously clever. <laughs> Except that he ended up not being that little. He was a German shepherd. And he was a crazy dog. He was a fun dog. One of the things that made him crazy was he hated water streams. So if I pressed the, the button, the trigger on, a, on a, a, a sprayer, he just went nuts. He went nuts like little uh, German shepherd demons just it took in. So, I mean, if I'd shoot it at him, he would... He would bite his way right up the stream of water until he reached the... I mean, clear across the... Like a Pac-Man, a little doggy Pac-Man. Or all I had to do was this and just turn the water on and he would... He was flying into the... You could hear the, the clicking of his jaws as he was trying to bite this water that he hated, hated so badly. I did not have to walk this dog. I just got out, took the hose and... He got all the exercise he needed. When I walked down the, into the yard and Cable was there, if, when I picked up that hose, it was like... And wherever the, that hose went, you know, wherever it was... And he was just waiting. He was ready. That is the image of what Paul is saying to us when he says, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. What we set our mind on, we do it with unwavering focus and attention, almost obsession. And he says you can set your mind on the things of the flesh, or he says you can choose now that you are free in Christ, now that you belong to the kingdom of the Spirit, you can set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And he says, and that will give you peace and life. Who doesn't want peace and life? And that's what he says you can get. I've spent my entire Christian life learning how to do this, learning how to set my mind on life-giving things of the Spirit. And if you've been here with me for a while, you know that it doesn't always come easy for me. I tend to be a worrier. God help me, I tend to be kind of pessimistic. And, and there, you know, I know there is no excuse for, no reason for a, a Spirit-filled follower of Jesus to, be, to worry or to be pessimistic. But this is, in fact, the spiritual battle that I have fought all of my life. It's, it's why I memorize Scripture. I, I, I know that I need to fill those, those voids in my soul with God's good word. 
so that this, when I'm tending to look for other stuff, instead it's going to be God's word that fills me. It's, it's why sometimes in my prayer life, I would just say the name of Jesus over and over and over again. Because what better place for me to set my mind on than the name of my beloved Savior? It's why sometimes in my prayer life, I will just begin to recite to the Lord all of the good things He has done in my life. Not because I think He's forgotten, but because I've forgotten. And if I didn't forget that, I wouldn't find myself moving towards worry and anxiety and peace. Because I, I need to remind myself, yet again, of the faithfulness, the goodness the persistent love and favor that God has poured out upon my life. So I'm practicing these things. And I want to tell you, I'm here to testify. That's a Pentecostal thing. I'm going to testify that the Spirit is making some progress. Recently, if you're visiting with us, we have a pastoral couple, Ellis, Pastor Ellis and his wife Rachel and their kids. Um, they're from England, and they went back in November for a vacation. And you know the story. When they tried to come back into the States, their visa was not renewed. They were denied. And so they ended up spending a couple of months trapped in, trapped in Babylon, you know. <laughs> the, the hideous, idolatrous old country. I mean... <laughs> now, those of you who know me know that I worked hard along with many others in this congregation, to get them back. And I prayed hard to get them back. But there was something else that I did. At the outset of this, when I heard the words from Ellis, he's only said these things twice to me. Mark, on the phone, he said, Mark, brace yourself. Said, uh. Now, so I hate, I hate hearing those words from Ellis because both times it was bad news. Mark, brace yourself. After he told me, you know, brace yourself, this is what's going on, I, I chose... Right then to say, all right, God, you're God. These are your children. This is your church. And so I'm going to believe you. I'm going to trust you that you're in control. This isn't catching you by surprise. And that you're going to be at work. Furthermore, I'm going to trust you that if if you choose not to bring them back to us, that too is part of your purpose. I don't like that idea. It's not what I'm going to work for. But if that's what you decide, I'm going to bow before your sovereignty. And so... From the beginning, I worked as if it depended upon me, and I prayed as if it depended upon the Lord. But more to the point, I did not worry much, you know, much. (laughs) There were moments, but mostly, mostly I didn't. And, uh, and And I came to the other end of that when I saw God, how he'd answered, and the I came to the other side saying, that was a moment where I obeyed the Lord, where I obeyed Paul, where I set my mind on the things of the Spirit. I trusted God and let him be at work. No one except for you and God knows what's really going on in your mind. Only you know whether your mind tends to be filled with obsessions about this life and anxiety and about will your finances last through retirement and what's going to happen to your children, what's going to happen to your marriage. Only you know what's going on in that brain of yours. You can hide it on the outside, but your mindset reveals the kingdom that is prevailing in your life. So which is it? And here's the deal. Only you can choose to change that. Only you can choose to refocus your thought life. Only you can choose to move your attention and your focus to the things that, know, that you know are going to please God and bring you life and peace. 
It really is that simple. It really is that simple. When you find your mind being drawn to the things of the flesh, you rebuke it. You reject it. You view it as an attack of the enemy. Instead, you choose to refocus with Caleb-like intensity on whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and good and worthy. A speaker at Mops recently uh, said something that was really pretty remarkable. It was a piece of research. There was a group of, of... deeply depressed people, clinically depressed people. And so uh, part of the research was this, that they were told every day to write down three good things. Every day write down three good, look for three good things that you can write down, record them, journal them. It might be as simple as I found a good parking place. Write it down. In seven days, these deeply clinically depressed people were writing down three good things every day. In seven days, they discovered that they began to look for good things. Seven days. They began to look for good things. They began to expect good things. The way they set their minds began to shape their life. One of the greatest enemies of the spirit-led, spirit-filled life is stinking thinking. And one of the most powerful weapons for the spirit-filled, spirit-controlled life is a mind that is set on the things of the spirit. The way you think, the things you focus on are the single greatest weapon in the battle for your own spiritual life and health. So we now come to a victory table, a victory dinner. This is the victory of the spirit over flesh. When we eat this bread and we drink this juice, that's what reminds us of the victory that Christ has brought to us, the freedom that Christ has brought to us. And I would invite you as you prepare for communion this day, Think about your thinking. Look back, survey the last week. How have you thought? What are the things you've been focused on? Have you been obsessed with things of this world? Have you been obsessed with things that bring about anxiety and and unsettled spirit? Or have you found yourself being grateful to God and lifting up your gratitude to the Lord? What better way for us to come to the Lord's Supper today than to say, Jesus, I want to set my mind on all of the blessings of my life. I want to set my mind on the things of the Spirit as I come to this victory meal. I invite you today to prepare your hearts as we come to the table of the Lord.